Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for being here this evening. My name is Ethan Tucker. I serve as Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar. And we are so delighted to welcome you to our 2019 summer kickoff. I want to welcome students, old and new. Uh, we begin always with appreciation for the spaces that host us. We're really delighted to be shaking it up this year. We usually have our kickoffs at 190 Amsterdam Avenue, and it's a real privilege to be here at Congregation B'nai Jeshurun in this historic and really amazing room uh, and sacred space uh, for the first part of what's going to be a three-part series uh, as our uh, summer lecture series kicks off, and it's a delight really to share this space and to be hosted here by this community that's so committed to learning. Uh, we are here first and foremost this evening to celebrate our summer fellows, all 44 of them who anchor our space, our Beit Midrash at 190 Amsterdam Avenue. I'll ask you if you're a summer fellow, stand up so we can give you a round of applause. We do hope that over the course of this summer, all of you will join us both in this space for the rest of this lecture series on upcoming Tuesdays, but also at our Beit Midrash at 69th and Amsterdam for just a general space and environment of Torah we hope you will participate in. I also want to just very give, briefly give you a sense of the larger picture of where Hadar is as we begin our 13th summer, uh, believe it or not. Uh, and the Parsha this week really names this for me in a very powerful way. There is a little section, it's the shortest Parsha in the sense of paragraph in the entire Torah. We know it, we sing it all the time. When the Arom would pick up and start to travel. That little paragraph is marked by two nun type shapes in the Torah, indicating that there's something special about it. And Rabbi, Rabbi Udan Asi, says about it, it is so marked off, It is a book deserving of its own attention and its own moment. And there is something about that Parsha and Rabbi's comment on it that notes that actually there is very important work in the world of building the Aron, of constructing the sacred spaces, and then there is something that is chashuv bifnei atzmo, that is equally important, of how you get those spaces to move. How you get them not just to remain in one space, but to actually expand their reach and begin to touch people in different places in different ways. This has been an extraordinary year at Hadar for that kind of movement and growth, and the months ahead promise to be even more so. We have built a kind of aron, a sacred space of learning that contains the most intense version of Talmud Torah, of learning, of a community, a cohort of students who come in. Our summer and year-round fellowships have really been that kind of inner sanctum of the entire project of what we do. And we have been moving in so many ways this past year. We have now immersive programs that are engaging over 700 people each year. We have movement and engagement in other locations beyond New York. Our first ever intensive in another city that we did in Washington, D.C. with 100 people. 
We have lectures that are now going on regularly in Boston that are attracting upwards of 130 people. We're about in a couple months to start our fourth Hebrew language for Israelis program in Israel during the month of Elul and much more. And there is also our content. Two million downloads a year online and growing. That continues to expand its reach where the focus is timeless and timely Torah. The things that never get old, how do you learn davening, how do you just engage with meaningful readings of the Torah every week, and how do you take on the most difficult issues of the day, like we are in tonight's series beginning this evening, dangerous Torah, the vision, the idea that we understand that Torah is both a life-giving force, but also in the wrong hands and in the wrong context can unfortunately also be a point of pain and danger. It's a privilege in the context of all of that, really a privilege and honor to introduce my colleague Dina Weiss to teach this evening. Dina is the Rosh Beit Midrash at Hadar, the director of our full-time immersive programs, and that means she has been at the epicenter for almost a decade now of building that Aron, that sacred space. If you walk into 190 Amsterdam and you hear a Kol Torah, you see students who are engaging, pushing themselves, it is in no small part because of the attention that Dina has given to that space day in, day out, to make it the kind of place with the serious Torah that you take for granted. And for the last year and a half, Dina, as many of you know, has been writing the weekly Divrei Torah the aspect of Hadar that reaches to people who will never set foot in that building, some of whom, I kid you not, are as far away as Afghanistan, and who are connecting with the ideas and the pulsating force of the Torah that emerges from that Beit Midrash in a way that can meet people where their lives are. Dina's insights on the Torah, you know if you've read her Divrei Torah, are piercing, her parshanut is fresh, and her application of these timeless texts to issues of character and how we carry ourselves as people in the world are often bold, challenging, and often and always relevant. We are thrilled and honored to have her kick off our series this evening on Dangerous Torah, Dina. I'm really excited um, to welcome all of you here. Also want to acknowledge how exciting it is to have a new cohort of students who bring so much energy and so much love um, for the Torah into the Beit Midrash and also to my life in particular. Tonight's topic is a little bit difficult. Uh, it's very easy. And this is the ideal when you have good people producing good Torah, where it's someone of fine character who is producing ideas and teaching a kind of life that we all want to live. That is very easy. And also, it's actually pretty easy when you have a bad person who's teaching what we might call bad Torah, right? Someone whose character we don't trust, teaching pernicious ideas in the name of God. And we can just say, it's very nice that you call that Torah, but I don't want to accept that. I don't accept you, and I don't accept your poison. And we can very easily set that aside. It becomes a little bit more complicated Right? When we have good people producing bad Torah, and we have bad people producing good Torah. Now, I'm using the term good and bad kind of blithely. Right? Obviously, everybody is complex. Um, the question of when a good person um, produces bad Torah, I think that is probably most uh, safely sort of thought of. We inherited a certain tradition, 
and some of the texts that we inherited in our tradition we might not want to generate today. Right? That is a question that I'm not dealing with tonight, although that is an extremely important and an extremely pressing question. How do we deal with Torah from a source that we trust, but the output is just something that we are not sure that we can sign on to? Uh, tonight's topic is what I called um, when good Torah happens to bad people. Right? When you're sort of stuck in this situation where there's someone whose character you don't trust, you don't actually want to learn from this person, from who they are, but there's something that they're teaching, the content of what they're teaching is very compelling. Um, and I think that this tension right, doesn't only exist in the Torah, uh, it exists in art, it exists in the history of science. Science is littered with experiments that are horrifying and that we would never ever stand for today, but we don't reject right, the truth that comes out of it. It's a very, very complicated topic. And what I want to do is I want to insert what I find to be just a little bit of clarity in a topic that usually when it comes up, people say is complicated. And I want to say, maybe too boldly, maybe it's not as complicated as we think. Maybe we're just not willing to say um, what we feel like we could or should say because we don't want to sacrifice this Torah or this art or this music or this science or whatever that we find to be valuable. Maybe we should actually be taking a stronger stand, but there's something that's holding us back. Um, so what I want to do tonight is present my basic thoughts on this topic. Um, and my major motivation is not to convince you um, to think about this topic the way that I do. That is not my motivation. Sometimes it is, tonight it's not. Uh, my motivation is to present to you some way of categorizing these different impulses that we just push aside as complicated. Right? Some text to help us think through what it might mean to say, I'm going to make a decision about this and not just be trapped in the paralysis of this feels difficult, this feels complicated. Um, so I want to start by just going straight in to the complicated. If you have um, a product right, that is clearly causing harm, you can just dismiss it. Now, what I think often introduces the notion that this conversation is more complex than maybe I think it needs to be is we often ask the question of, does, does this person's bad character, their bad philosophy, their complicated history in some way impurify right, the art or the Torah that they've produced? Can, does it seep in in ways that we can't feel? And we often find ourselves sort of re-listening to Mahler symphonies and seeing if we can, can we hear the evil? Right? Maybe if we heard the evil, we'd be able to set it aside. But instead, what we actually feel is very uplifted. Right? We feel great. We're so inspired right, by um, the prowess of this great composer. And, and we're confused. How could a, a person who is at least evil to us right, produce something that we ourselves find to be beautiful? Right? And, and, and the question of Torah right, brings it even stronger. 
spiritually uplifting and maybe something that feels to us almost religiously or spiritually necessary. What are we going to do? So I want to start with a machloket. In the beginning of section one, two texts, a Gemara in Erevin and a Gemara in Yoma. The first text is the Gemara in Erevin. Rabbi Yehuda said, sorry, Rabbi Yehuda the son of Rabbi Chia said, come and see that the way of God is not like the way of humanity. A human being will give an elixir to his friend. It will be good for him and harmful to someone else. Right? If I take your prescription medication for your heart condition that I don't have, that is a terrible idea. And that is how human medicine works. What's good for you might be actually quite harmful for me. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy Blessed One, is not so. He gave the Torah to Israel as an elixir, a sam chayim, an elixir of life for a, for a person's entire body. As it says, ki chayim heim lemotzehem, Right, that the words of Torah are just a source of life, and they are entirely healing to the body. This is a vision of the Torah that says, Torah is always good. If I call it Torah, it has to be good. If I say that there's something divine in it, if I can call it rightly Torah, it must have a positive effect. Otherwise, it's not Torah. But this is not the only view of Torah as a sum, as an elixir that we have in the Talmud. So I want to draw your attention to source number two in the Gemara in Yoma. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi said, what does the verse mean when it says, v'zot ha-Torah asher sam Moshe? This is the Torah that Moshe placed, that Moshe sammed. I might have said, this is the Torah that Moshe gave. I might have said, this is the Torah that Moshe taught. Why does it say that this is the Moshe, this is the Torah that Moshe summed? Because there's something about the word sam if I switch out the sin and put in a samach. Okay, this, in an oral culture, this is a lot smoother. Okay. So we say, if he merits im zacha, na'asit lo sam then the Torah is for him an elixir of life. But lo zacha, if he does not merit, it will be for him an elixir of death. This is a machloket, right? Here is a debate. The Gemara in Erevin says the Torah is always good. What, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, Bobby or whether you're Margaret. All of the Torah is good for everybody all of the time. And then Rabbi Yeshua Levi says, no. Sometimes the Torah can be a sam mavet. Sometimes the Torah can be harmful to you. You have to merit for it to be good. And Rabbah continues, so the Gemara continues to say this is consistent with Rabbah's principle. One who is uman to it, don't know how to translate it, so I'm going to transliterate it for the time being, and then I'll explain what I think it might mean. Um, it is an elixir of life. And for one who is not uman to it, it is an elixir of death. So the word uman, aleph mem nun, often people think that this has to do with emunah, with faith. If you are sort of, if you believe in it, if you're faithful to it, um, it is going to be useful for you. And if not, not. But another way to understand the word uman is like the word omanut, right? A, like a craftsman, right? If you are someone who knows how to use it, knows how to apply it, 
if you get the doctor's instructions and you put it on the wound that it's supposed to go on and not on the wound that it's not supposed to go on, then it is going to be a samachayim for you. It's going to be an elixir of life. But if you're not strategic, if you just sort of say, oh, it's Torah, let me drink it up. Let me put it all over my body. I don't need a prescription. I don't need to pay attention to where it comes from. I don't need to pay attention to what it's doing. Then you actually run the risk of it being a Sam Hamavet. Right? And I want to be very clear on how I'm reading this text, which might not be how everybody would read this text. I think that the Torah that we're talking about here, which we are calling potentially a Sam Hamavet, an elixir of death, is Torah that we would recognize as Torah. If it's something that's just a poisonous statement, something that's just a cruel, terrible thing to say, or something that's just wrong, I don't need to tell you. Be careful with it. It could be an elixir of death. Because that thing can't be an elixir of life. Right? We are actually talking about Torah that could be an elixir of life. But there's something about the way it's coming to you. There's something about the way that you're using it that is transforming it from something that would have been good and life-giving to something that is bad, something that you have to be really careful with. Right? I could stop here. This might be radical enough. I believe, and I'm just going to speak for myself, I'm not going to speak for Rabbah or Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, I believe that there are ways that we can use the Torah to make excuses and to corrupt ourselves. And often, right, this same impulse, where we are not aware of how we're using the Torah, we're just sort of assuming that it's good, is what leads us to not be able to separate ourselves from Torah that comes from negative influences. Because we see it as Torah. We rightly call it Torah. And therefore we say, it's got to be good. I don't, I don't hear. I don't taste. I don't sense any of the bad in it. It just feels great. It just feels like Torah. And I'd like to argue that that's not enough. Right? That actually, taking in the Torah in that way might be harmful. Um, and I want to continue into source number three. The Gemara and Sanhedrin. We're still on the first page, so we've got plenty to go. Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rav, we only place on the Sanhedrin, right, that is the highest court um, in the Jewish society, someone who knows how to purify a sheretz from the Torah. Someone who knows how to use the Torah to declare something that is inherently impure, a sort of creepy crawly bug be able to say that it's pure. And Rahab said, I did it. Put me on the Sanhedrin. I can do this. Um, I will make an inference, and I will purify it. Rahab said, this is actually something that's achievable. I can do it. Um, just as a snake kills and thereby increases impurity, but nevertheless is itself pure, Isn't it logical um, that it should be pure, meaning that the sheret should be pure? So essentially we're saying we have something that has the capacity to kill, right? And death is the greatest source of impurity. So I have something that causes death, and yet that thing itself can, can remain pure. So something which is essentially harmless, like when, when, it, when it crawls on your skin, it doesn't hurt you at all. That's obviously pure. Right? But it's not pure. The Torah says explicitly that it's not pure. And the question that I want 
um, to raise and then immediately answer is why do I need to have people on the Sanhedrin able to do this trick where they can take something that is explicitly prohibited and say, I can logically infer for you, I can explain to you how it's obvious that this is permitted. I think it's for two reasons. The first is for us, and the second is for the person who is sitting on the Sanhedrin. For us, we need to know that there are people sitting on the Sanhedrin who have this power. That they can say something that seems so beautiful, so coherent, so Torah-esque, and they can be wrong. And more importantly, the person who's sitting on the Sanhedrin needs to know that they have the power to be mitzaharet hasharetz, to declare something that is inherently impure, pure, and they need to know how to watch themselves. They need to ask themselves, am I being harmful? Am I excusing behavior? Am I excusing myself because I'm able to reason myself out of it? Okay, um, one more text in this section before we go into actually talking about people. Um, my favorite holiday is Sukkot. And there's really nothing about Sukkot that I don't like. Uh, but I could imagine that if taking a lulav and etrog meant that I had to stab myself with lots of tiny little spikes or with one big sharp spike, I might be a little bit less excited about picking up my lulav and etrog every year since my etrog is so cute and it's so bumpy and it smells so great and my lulav is so, you know, is so inspirational and it's comfortable to hold in my hand, I'm very eager to pick it up. But what if we were to use a different section of the date palm and my lulav would be uncomfortable? It would be something that could stick me in the hand, right? possibly cause me to bleed. Right, so let's say, right, we're, this is the section of the Gemara, which some people think is a little bit boring, where they're trying to figure out which is the part of the lulav tree that gets to be the lulav that we take, but actually it's very interesting, because one of the possibilities is that we might take something that is spiky, something that is sharp, and that would be the lulav. And so the Gemara suggests and say one could use the kufra. Maybe one could use the part of the date palm that is sharp, the spike. Amar Abaye, Abaye says, It says about the Torah, right, and this is actually a very beautiful proof text, right, because this is Eitz Chaim He, the Torah is a tree of life, so, so it's a sort of a, an extension of the botanical imagery. The Torah's ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. How it, what, who cares? Right. Is this the right part of the tree to use or not? Is it valid or not? And Abaye says, well, you know if it's valid, if it coheres with a certain orientation of the Torah. And this orientation of the Torah is towards softness and pleasantness and rightness. Right? So even if you have a logical reason to think that this part of the, of the date palm is right, there's no verse in the Torah that is about the date palm, that tells you this spike is invalid, you have to lean into your understanding that the Torah is supposed to be practiced and the Torah is supposed to be pleasant. And if this is something that is going to cause somebody harm, it's not usable. Okay. Um, we're gonna transition now uh, to section number two.
And we're going to start talking a little bit more about the people who I've been kind of vaguely referring to, who might be negative characters, who might produce bad Torah. Um, and we're going to see two texts, one from Moed Katan and one from Chagiga, which represent or present two different kinds of bad. Uh, one kind of bad is someone whose behavior is immoral. We're probably talking about someone who is engaged in sexual morality. That's case number one. I would say not too far from the kinds of cases that we're dealing with when we're trying to figure out, do I want to accept Torah? Do I want to accept music from this person? Um, and the second text is about someone whose ideology right, is suspect, who is considered to be a heretic. Right? So there's two different kinds of bad people. Um, and I just want you to be aware of that as we go through the text, we're going to be relying on this distinction between bad behavior and bad ideas to make, uh, to make a path through texts that seem like they're contradicting each other um, and maybe show that they're actually quite consistent. Okay, so here's the first story. Just get comfortable, it's a long story, but it's an interesting story. There was a young Torah scholar, Sorba Merabanan. Sorba Merabanan also has a kind of, um, a sense that he's kind of like a young whippersnapper type of rabbi. Like he's young and he's fresh and he's bright and he's smart. Um, he's, the, he's the next, he's the next Rabbi Akiva, watch him. So this guy, this young Torah scholar, Havusanu um, Shomane, there's something negative about his reputation. Rumors are circulating about him. Um, and even though maybe there isn't something that is prosecutable, the assumption of the Talmud is that these rumors are correct. Okay, so we're not just talking about someone who spread libel about this poor Torah scholar. We're talking about a Torah scholar who was behaving inappropriately. And everybody's talking about it, but it hasn't been prosecuted. Rabbi Huda said, what should we do? This is the question that we're all asking ourselves. Should we excommunicate him? Should we just say, this Torah scholar is out? I don't care what great ideas he might produce. I don't care how many students he might inspire. I don't care how many congregants right, might be drawn to a synagogue that wouldn't be drawn anywhere else. Maybe we should just excommunicate him. Um, so the problem with that is, well, the rabbis need him. Meaning he is a core member of the rabbinic academy. We can't just dispose of this guy. We can't get rid of his Torah. What he's producing intellectually is extremely valuable. The rabbis need him. But on the other hand, should we refrain from excommunicating him? Should we excuse his behavior? Should we pretend that we didn't hear anything about what he's been doing? That will profane the name of heaven. That's going to be Mechalel Shem Shemayim. So Rabbi Yehuda um, is having this internal debate, or maybe it's an out loud debate, but nobody is responding to him. Um, so then he says to Rabbi Barbarhana, have you learned anything about this? Right? Rav Yehuda feels stuck the way that we often feel stuck. Right? On the one hand, I don't, I'm not sure I trust this person's character. So let's get rid of him. But on the other hand, what he's producing feels so spiritually and religiously essential. How can I just excommunicate him? On the one hand, he's profaning God's name. On the other hand, he also seems to be advancing God's agenda right? by producing a Torah that we feel that we want, or maybe even that we feel that we need. So he feels stuck, and he turns to Rabbi Barbarachan, and he says, what should I do? Have you learned anything about this? Right, let's turn to the Torah. Maybe the Torah has some insight for us. 
So Rabbi Baruchana says back to him, so said Rabbi Yochanan. I actually do have a teaching from Rabbi Yochanan. What does the Torah mean when it writes, he kohen pihu, ki malach Adonai For the priest's lips keep knowledge, and they seek Torah from his mouth, for he is an angel of the Lord of hosts. And Rabbi Yochanan sees this key, this for, this because, you should seek Torah from this priest because he is an angel of God, not as something that is necessarily the case. Oh, every single priest, well, they're wearing white and they're serving in the temple, so clearly they're an angel of God. But he's reading this key not as because, but as when, as ka'asher. And so he says, if the rabbi is similar to an angel of the Lord of hosts, right, and maybe it's better to say when the rabbi is similar to an angel of the Lord of hosts, then they should seek Torah from his mouth. But if not, they should not seek Torah from his mouth. Right, so the question is not, is this Torah valuable? The question is not, is this Torah valid? The question is not, do we need this guy? The question is, what is his character? Is he like a malach Hashem tzvakot? Does he reach the standard of, I want to emulate that person. I don't want to just listen to what he says. I want to do what he does. Rabbi Yochanan says, no. And so Rabbi Yehuda says, all right, that's the answer to my question. Rabbi Yehuda excommunicated him. We're in the next box in source number one in section two. And then eventually Rabbi Yehuda became gravely ill. And so essentially the rabbis and this excommunicated rabbi see that this is the time before Rabbi Yehuda passes away to release the excommunication. Right? He's the person who put this guy into Cherem, into Nidoi, and now he's the person who's going to have to take him out. So um, Rabbi Yehuda became gravely ill, and the rabbis came to inquire about his releasing the band, right, about releasing this excommunication. And that man, right, that is that former rabbi, um, is also with them. When Rabbi Yehuda saw him, he left. And then that man said to Rabbi Yehuda, it isn't enough that you excommunicated that man, that is me, it's just the way that they spoke right about themselves in the third person. Um, isn't it enough that you excommunicated that man, but you are also laughing at me? But you can't believe it. He's coming to Rabbi Yehuda. I think this is his big chance to finally have this excommunication lifted. And he, he's, a, he's ready to ask, and he's ready to gain forgiveness, but he's not ready for is for Rabbi Yehuda to laugh in his face. And he says, isn't it bad enough that you ruined my life? I was, I was a promising Torah scholar. You excommunicated me, and now you're laughing at me? And Rabbi Yehuda said, no, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just happy, right? I'm just proud of my decision. Because when I get to that world, right, that is the world to come, my mind will be glad that I didn't even flatter a man like you, right? Rabbi Yehuda never goes back on his decision. And he feels totally resolved, right, when he is going to meet his maker that he took a strong stand against this person. And the story continues in the ellipses where we see the rabbis and this excommunicated rabbi going to different people to try to see if they will lift the ban. If since Rabbi Yehuda will lift the ban, maybe somebody else who has more power will be able to do it. Um, so finally, it gets to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi also doesn't release the ban. And he, that is that excommunicated rabbi, was going around crying. A bee came and stung him on his penis, and he died. 
Now, in case you were wondering what the sin was that this rabbi was uh, accused of, I think this might be a hint to what might have been the problem, okay? Um, so the bee came and stung him in a very revealing place, and he died. They brought him into the cave of the pious, right? They have to go bury him. And they, the pious, won't accept him. They're like, we don't want this person. This person doesn't reach the standard of piety. They bring him into the cave of judges, and they accept it, and they're like, fine, we'll take it. What is the reason? Right? Why do we have to go through all of this? Why do we have to excommunicate him and be so strong about not releasing the ban? And why does he have to die in such an embarrassing way? And the answer is because he practiced according to Rabbi Eli. As it is taught in the Brita, Rabbi Eli says, if you see someone um, who's, sorry, if a person sees that their evil inclination is overcoming them, they should go somewhere where people don't know them. And they should wear black clothing and wrap themselves in black and do what they want, rather than publicly profane the name of heaven. Right, and so we're saying this guy thought that he was doing this. This guy thought that it was okay for him to sin in secret, and that if he sins in secret, it's not profaning the name of heaven. But it was profaning the name of heaven. And when we had this conflict between, are we going to stand up for our principles? Or are we going to just use this person for their Torah? We decide that we're going to stand up and not accept him. That's source number one. Pretty strong. If I was a little bit less intellectually honest, I would stop here, just drop the mic and leave. Okay. But we're going to do the Gemara Chagiga, which is a little bit more complicated. This Gemara is about Revelisha ben Abuya's family. So the story begins with Revelisha ben Abuya's daughter, um, who has come to a very severe state of destitution. And she goes to Rabbi Hudanasi and she says, Rabbi Parnasani, I need you to provide for me. I, I can't provide for myself. And he asks her, but hmm, Mi'at, whose daughter are you? And she says, I'm Acher's daughter. Okay, um, and then they have like a continuing conversation and in the end, uh, it's not clear whether or not he feeds her, but he does receive a lesson about maybe treating Acher with a little bit of respect. And then the, the story shifts from looking at Acher's daughter and sort of the aftermath for Acher's daughter and goes to the person who actually is rabbinically Acher's son, Rabbi Meir. Right? Rabbi Meir was his student, and Rabbi Meir is in some ways considered to be a son, so we move from the daughter and her state to the son, Rabbi Meir, and his state. And we ask, as for Rabbi Meir, how could he learn Torah from Acher's mouth? How could he do this? Acher is considered to be a persona non grata. We don't study from him, he's a heretic, how come Rabbi Meir is still hanging out with him? Okay? Because didn't Rabbi Barachana say that Rabbi Yochanan said, you got to be like an angel of the Lord of hosts. And this guy, Elisha ben Abuya, is not like an angel of the Lord of hosts anymore. Because you know what the angel of the Lord of hosts is? From. And Elisha ben Abuya is not from. So he's not doing any of the mitzvot. Maybe he's still a nice guy. But we can't learn Torah from him. He's not very angelic. So Rish Lakish says, right, Rabbi Yochanan's uh, interlocutor, his chavruta, Rabbi Meir found a verse and interpreted it. 
It's true, this seems to be a violation of the notion that you have to learn Torah only from people who are angelic. But Rebbe Meir had another approach, he had another way of dealing with this issue. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge, capital M. Right, so God says, yeah, you learn from the Chachamim, but what you're actually learning is my knowledge. It's not Acher's Torah, it's God's Torah. Right, so it doesn't actually matter what the source is. You can divorce the Torah from its context and you can learn from Acher. That was Rabbi Meir's um, approach. And then Rabbi Hanina brings a different verse, but it's the same basic idea of being able to divorce something from its context. And then the Gemara continues, as it often does, we have a machloket. These verses contradict each other. What is it? Is it that God's Torah comes to us and it doesn't matter where it comes from and we don't have to worry about the shell? Or is it that I only learn Torah from people who are angels? And if Acher is not considered to be an angel, I don't learn Torah from him. These verses conflict with each other. And then the Gemara answers, don't worry, no conflict. This verse corresponds to a gadol, a great person or maybe an adult. And this verse corresponds to a katan, a minor, someone who's not necessarily too um, advanced in their perceptions of the world. Right, and so, it's, so at this point, the Talmud seems to say, well, for people that don't really know how to distinguish Right, for someone who's not of Rabbi Meir's caliber, then they have to be really careful who they're studying from. But once you are Rabbi Meir, right, maybe once you are an angel yourself, you don't have to quite worry as much about the source of the Torah that you are receiving. And so now we have some uh, more botanical images. When Rav Dimi came from Eretz Israel to Babylonia, he said, in the West, that is in Israel, they say, Rabbi Meir ate an underripe date and cast out the peel. Right, so he was able to say, well, this part is tasty, but this part is bad, so I'm only going to eat the part of the date that is good. Um, and Rava continues, what does the Torah mean when it says, El ginat egos I went down into the nut garden to look at the fresh plants by the river. Why are Torah scholars compared to nuts? To tell you, not because they're crazy, different kind of nuts, um, to tell you just as this nut Despite being soiled with mud and dung, its contents are not considered to be disgusting. Right? You can have a really dirty nut, but it doesn't matter, but you're gonna crack it and you're gonna eat the nut meat. What's going on on the outside is irrelevant. Um, so to a Torah scholar, though he has gone bad, his Torah is not considered to be disgusting. Okay. Right, so resolution number one is the person who receives the Torah um, can evaluate it and can decide this Torah is good, this Torah is bad. It actually doesn't have to do with the source that it's from, right? And Rav Dimi and, and, um, and Rava reinforce this notion that you can sort of discard the husk and just focus on the inside. It doesn't really matter where the Torah comes from. Okay, we're continuing on. Rama Barbar Shela encountered Eliyahu. We're going to get a little insight into what is going on in heaven. He said to Eliyahu, just curious, what is the Holy Blessed One doing? I just want to know. It's been a while since I received any dispatch from heaven. I want to know how God is keeping busy. And Eliyahu said to him, well, he's learning Torah, right? He is stating teachings from the mouths of all of the rabbis. 
but does not state them in the name of Rebbe Meir. Okay, so the, so the easy solution that we had before, the Rebbe Meir is so advanced that he can sift out the wheat from the chaff, maybe it's not so clear because in heaven, it seems like Hashem isn't really teaching Rebbe Meir's Torah. And if anybody could distinguish between you know, the source and its content, it would be God. So it seems that God is not making this distinction. God says, oh, Rabbi Meir's Torah comes from Acher. I'm not going to be teaching it. Uh, okay. So then Rabbi Barbashela says, but I've been studying Gemara, and I know how to vindicate Rabbi Meir. He said to him, why? And Eliyahu responds, because he learned teachings from the mouth of Acher. So then Rabbi Barbashela says back to him, why? Rabbi Meir found a pomegranate ate its innards, and discarded the peel. But he did a great job. He was able to solve this problem. He was able to, like, maybe quite literally crack this nut. And he's able to take the good Torah and discard the, the peel, discard the part that's not edible, discard the part that's not useful. Right? It's not useful for him to learn from Alicia's behavior, but he can learn from the way that um, Alicia Benabuya teaches. And so after Rabbi Barbashela says this, God revises God's behavior. And he says, Eliyahu says to him, oh wait, new dispatch from heaven, right? It's sort of, you could, you could sort of see him like tuning into the God channel on his like TV. And so like now it like crackles into focus and we see God and God has a new teaching. All of a sudden God is teaching in the name of Rabbi Meir. Now God is saying, Meir Bini, my son Meir says, when a person suffers, how does the divine presence express itself? Woe is me from my head, woe is me from my arm. And he concludes, if the Holy One, blessed be he, suffers to such an extent over the blood of the wicked, how much more so does he suffer over the blood of the righteous that is spilled? Um, I'm not really sure why this is the Torah of Rabbi Meir that God is choosing to say at this moment. Right? But we have a revision, it seems, in heaven where we are validated. Rebbe Mayer's decision to say, I'm going to dissociate right, the man from the message. I am able to learn from Acher, even though I'm not able to emulate Acher. I think that in order to resolve what appears to be an apparent contradiction between Moed, Katan, and Chagiga, between this image of this Sorba Merabanan, this, this firecracker rabbi who just has to be discarded entirely, Right? It's not like we're, getting, we're excommunicating him, but we're teaching his Torah. He's gone. And this image of Rabbi Meir, who's able to cleverly sift, he's a gadol, he can make his own decisions. How do we resolve these two, uh, these two texts? So I'm going to do what the Kibara says, and I'm going to say it's actually not a contradiction. Right? These are two different kinds of bad. What is the Torba Meir Banan accused of doing? He's accused of sexual impropriety. What is Alicia Ben Abuya? accused of doing mitzvot ben adam lamakom right he does not keep ritual law he might be philosophically a heretic but as a person he's a good person he is a trustworthy person and i think that one of the ways in which this manifests itself so beautifully um, is in a section of um, a story between um alicia ben abuya and rabbi Meir. They're walking, they're having this conversation, and at some point, Alicia says to Rebbe Mayer, Mayer, we're in source number three now, um, this is sufficient, the Shabbat boundary extends until here. So the image in this story is of a person on a horse, right, Alicia Benabuya is riding his horse on Shabbat, 
flagrant, flagrant um, flouting of the laws of Shabbat, and Rabbi Meir, who's walking next to him on foot, because Rabbi Meir, still from still keeping Shabbat, doesn't want to ride an animal on Shabbat. And as they're walking, at some point, Elisha says, we're going to stop now. We're not walking any further. Because this is where the Shabbat boundary extends to. You are not allowed to go beyond this point. Um, and Rabbi Meir says to him, well, how do you know? How do you know that this is Tchum Shabbat? I didn't see any signs. And Elisha says back to him, from the hooves of your horse, sorry, that should be of my horse, from the hooves of my horse, which I was counting, as they got to 2,000 on boat. Right, he's so saturated with Torah that even though he's not religious anymore, right, he is subtly counting the steps of the horse. Right, and it seems like he's doing this for Rebbe Meir. Right, he wants to protect Rebbe Meir, and he wants to prevent his student from violating Shabbat. Elisha ben Abuya is not an instigator. Right, he's not trying to cause trouble. He's not causing harm. He's actually doing the opposite. He, in and of himself, Right, might not be a person to emulate. When we're talking about the ritual law, when we're talking about interpersonal law, right, someone who is so invested in somebody else's commitments, that is someone right, that we, we might want to be like. That is someone who we might trust to teach a Torah that is good for us. Right? Because Alicia Ben Abuya cares about Rabbi Meir's religiosity. He cares about people in general. Um, and so Rabbi Meir says to him, you have all this wisdom, and you still don't repent, but you're clearly so saturated with an awareness of and a love of Torah. Why are you living this life? Why don't you just be with, be with us? Come back. Um, and Elisha ben Abuya says back to him, I can't. Rani tells the story about hearing some heavenly proclamation that says that he can't repent. Right? But it's very clear that Elisha ben Abuya's heresy is located within him. He's not having a negative impact on other people. So when we ask the question of, can we, accept bad, can we accept good Torah from bad people, we also have to ask the question of what kind of bad are we talking about? Are we talking about a person who just has their own personal beliefs, they might not be totally in conformity with the rabbinic norms, but they're good people and their Torah is based on solid foundations. Maybe from that person, I have to be strategic. I might need to be a gadol, I might need to be someone who's really wise and accomplished in order to do that surgery, but it can be done. When we're talking about someone who has a corrosive effect on other people, someone who doesn't respect other people, someone who doesn't appreciate boundaries, someone who is violating and profaning God's name, we do not have patience for this kind of person. And we do not care about how high, how high quality their Torah is. Um, and I just, one of the sort of subtle moments um, in the story of God teaching the Torah of everybody but Rabbi Meir, um, I want to raise the question, which I raised um, with the Summer Fellows a couple of days ago. Is Acher's Torah included in this ban on the Torah that God will recite? Meaning, it says that God is reciting everybody's Torah but Rabbi Meir. Does that mean that God is also refusing to teach the Torah of Acher? Or maybe God is only refusing to teach the Torah of Rabbi Meir. And they want to raise the possibility that God is okay with teaching the Torah of Acher and not okay with teaching the Torah of Rabbi Meir because the problem with Rabbi Meir is that he is an enabler right, of behavior that we might be trying to discourage. We don't want to maybe study Torah from people who are heretics because we don't want to give a kind of 
gushbanka, what's the English appropriate? That seems even harder to understand than gushbanka. We don't want to give our approval, that's a better word, um, to someone's heresies, and we want to dissociate ourselves from them. But for Acher himself, the Torah that he teaches isn't corrosive to himself, it's authentic to himself. Right? So Rabbi Meir might need to be taught a lesson, or the lesson of Rabbi Meir might need to be taught to us through Eliyahu, that you have to be careful about who you're learning Torah from because of the message that it might send. But when you listen to your own conscience, even if that conscience is a heretical conscience, right, God might not reject your Torah because what you're doing isn't having a negative outside influence. Right? And that's actually what we're concerned about here. We're not concerned about the goodness or the badness of the Torah, the rightness of the instruction. We're concerned about giving honor to people who we don't want to give honor to. Right? We're concerned that this Sorba Meirabanan, he's mitaherat hasheret. He is purifying himself. He's justifying that he's engaging in inappropriate sexual behavior because he thinks that nobody can see him. And so we want to say to that person, no. And we don't, we don't care that you have all this great Torah to offer. We're willing to sacrifice the Torah for the sake of moral integrity. For the sake of ethics, we're willing to throw this piece of Torah that you might have taught us away. I want to soften what I said just a little bit um, and go into the Rambam, which is source number four. The Rambam seems to decide like Rabbi Yochanan. He says, one may not learn from a teacher who does not walk in a good path, even if he is a great scholar and all need him. Right, this language of need, I think, is so important. This Torah is necessary, and nevertheless, we're going to reject it. As it's until he goes back to being good. As it says, right, he just quotes Rabbi Yochanan's teaching, only when, is he, when he is like an angel do we seek Torah from his mouth. On the one hand, the Rambam is just codifying Rabbi Yochanan and saying, if you can't trust this person, don't indulge their Torah. But he's also saying, this is a temporary measure. We are doing this until he is shuv lemutah, until he goes back to being good. Right? And I think this might not just be a description on the part of the Rambam, here is the extent to which we do this, do it until, but maybe it's also an explanation of why we do this. If we want our leaders to behave with integrity, we need to hold them up to that standard. If we demonstrate that we are going to put up with abusive, inappropriate behavior because we so desperately need that Torah, then we will enable abusive behavior because we say we're willing to put up with it. And if we come out and say, we're not going to stand for this, you need to reform yourself, and then we will start showing you honor. We will start treating you like a teacher. What we are doing is we are enabling right, this scholar to repent. We're showing them that they can't use the Torah as a way to justify their own behavior. When their behavior is just, then we will accept their Torah. Right, and I think, I think the right way to think about this Right, is that it is a form of excommunication. Right? And excommunication is a tool that the rabbis have to tell someone, 
Your behavior is not acceptable. We want you to reform your behavior. When you reform your behavior, we're going to welcome you back in. It's not really about the Torah at all, but it's about, willing to, it's about our willingness to say, we're sacrificing this. Because the ultimate value is that a person's behavior be totally above board. And I want to continue with a Rambam that, seem, that might seem to be not at all connected to this, um, which is about what happens if a heretic writes a safer Torah. So here we have, it is forbidden, generally, right, to burn or intentionally destroy, I'm in source number five, the second Rambam, it is forbidden to burn or intentionally destroy any holy writings, including interpretations and their explanations. We do not throw the Torah out, we do not burn it, right, we treat it with respect. And one who intentionally destroys them receives lashes for this rebellion. And then we say, well, in which case? Right? It's not about the words of the Torah itself. It's about who and how wrote these words got written. Okay? Holy writings, which were written by a Jew in holiness. When you have a Sefer Torah that was written by a Jew for the sake of the Torah, right, someone who recognizes God, then it becomes forbidden to destroy that work. But a Jewish heretic who wrote a Sefer Torah, the scroll is burnt along with the names of God written in it because he doesn't believe in the holiness of the name. And he only wrote it under the supposition that it was indistinguishable from the other words. Right? As he's writing the Torah, he doesn't feel any special gravity when he's writing God's name. He just plows through it. He's just copying through all the words. He doesn't care. Since that is his opinion, the name isn't sanctified. Because this is the way that this person treats the Torah. The Torah that they make is not actually a Torah. It quacks like a duck. Right? You read the Torah and you can't tell from the words that it's not a Torah, but actually it's not a Torah. And it needs to be destroyed. And why is that? So as not to leave a name for the heretics and to their actions. Right? It's to send a message. I don't care about the words. I care about what's behind the words. If you have malintent, I'm going to burn your Torah. But if a non-Jew writes the name, we bury it. We don't need right, to take a stand against the non-Jew. We understand what the relationship is between the non-Jew and the Torah. And we think that this person right, is writing, the Torah, writing this Torah with some sort of respect, even though we don't necessarily consider the Torah that they write to be something that's kosher for us to use in shul. But it's the heretic's Torah that we need to burn because that is liminal for us. That is confusing. We know that this person is a Jew. We have a havamina, we have a, a thought, a possibility, right, that this person's Torah might be equally valid. We, we're concerned about it. And so that's why we need to take a stronger stance and we need to say, you know what? Burn. We need to be able to say, it's not about the words of the Torah, it's about how those words were written. And if we don't care about how those words were written, right, there's something seriously lacking in our understanding of what the Torah is and what the Torah is designed to do. How are we doing? Okay. We're ready for section number three. We're doing great. Um, so I want to move a little bit from talking about abstract ideas, the Torah, um, and talk a little bit more about stuff. Because I think that part of the question 
um, that confronts us when we're trying to disentangle people from their work is, is there some sininess that is stuck in this, right? Do I, is it impure, right? Do I have to reject it because there is some evil that has somehow been soaked through? Um, so we're gonna start with the Tosefta in Sanhedrin. Rabbi Ezra ben Yaakov said, what does the verse teach in saying, one who steals and blesses spurns God? They constructed a parable. Here we go. To what is this matter similar? To one who stole a measure of wheat. He ground the wheat, he baked the wheat, and he separated challah from it, and he fed his children. And then we say, how could this guy bless? This one doesn't bless, rather he spurns. Right? The blessing that he makes is disgusting. Look at the way that this bread came into being. It's, when you stole the wheat, that was one thing. Well, you kept on manipulating it. Now it can never go back to its original owner. Every step that you've done has made it worse. You can't make a blessing on this. Um, on this it says, one who steals and blesses spurns God. Very strict standard. Started out in theft. I don't care what happens to this wheat, we're not going to make a blessing. But it becomes a little bit more complicated when we look at the Yerushalmi and Chala, which is section three, source number two. It is taught, matzah gazula, asur levarechala, we do not bless on stolen matzah. Matzah is very expensive. You could see why somebody would want to steal it, but don't do it because you won't be able to make the blessing on it. And Rabbi Hoshaya said, of course, right? This is a familiar teaching. I know something about bread that was stolen because I have this tosefta. Right, where Rabbi Ezra ben Yaakov says that one who steals and blesses spurns God. Of course you're not going to make a bracha on a stolen matzah. God isn't going to be pleased by that. God is going to be insulted by that. But then the story becomes a little bit more complicated. Rabbi Yonah said, this is said in the beginning. But in the end, doesn't he owe him money? Right, so essentially we're saying, when somebody steals a loaf of bread, if the loaf of bread is still intact, I need to return that loaf of bread to the person I stole it from. Now, what if I ate that bread? Do I need to return the loaf of bread that I ate to its owner? No, that loaf of bread, gone. What I now have to do is return the money, the value of the loaf of bread to the owner. Right? And similarly, if we go back in history, right, even if I have something that is uh, saleable, if it was wheat and then I turned it into bread, if I stole wheat from you and I made bread out of it, I don't return the bread, I return the money, and the bread is mine. Okay, so there actually is a possibility to transfer through like enough process and enough time the kind of sin quality from the object to a kind of abstract obligation to pay back, and the food itself Right, is going to be fine. I can make a blessing on this matzah because the, the sinness of this matzah, the soulness of this matzah, no longer inheres in the object. It inheres in my abstract responsibility to repent, but not in this food. This food is no longer tainted. Um, and Rabbi Yonah said, this is probably a different Rabbi Yonah, um, and Avera cannot be a mitzvah. Rabbi Yonah says, what are you talking about? You can't money launder, you can't wheat launder, right? And, and take this thing that, that clearly is for an Avera, from an Avera, from a sin, and say, well, like, now it's fine because it's changed. No, it is what it is. And then Rabbi Yossi said, and this is one of my 
I think it's so, it's so subtle, but I think it's actually really important. A mitzvah cannot be an avera, right? That actually, we can't have this notion that the, this bad pedigree remains in it forever. We need to have some circumstances where we say the mitzvah is stronger than the avera. The good that we're going to do here, right, is actually going to be more powerful than the pedigree. We can do repentance. Right? We can actually move away from this. I want the mitzvah to be more powerful. I want to live in a world where things can be redeemed. Um, and I'm going to, I think, narrate outside for the sake of time. Um, there is a rabbinic enactment that is somewhat similar to the notion that I don't have to return the wheat once I've turned it into bread. I just return the money. Um, similarly, if I have a bean, what I stole from you is a brick, it's a piece of lumber. Theoretically, even if I build that brick into a large structure, I kind of owe you that brick back. Because the brick is still intact. You could use it the same way that you could have used it before. It's just extremely inconvenient for me to dismantle my building in order to give it back to you. Actually, I want to read it inside because it's a cute story. Can't resist a cute story. Um, the, our rabbis taught in Abraita, we're in source number three in section number three. Um, robbers and those who lend money with interest who have returned, meaning they've done tshuva, we do not receive restitution from them. And one who does take from them, the rabbis are not pleased with him. Right, that we have a policy that when someone is a career criminal, right, someone is someone who lends with interest, and someone's a robber, right, they're not someone who has robbed, they're a robber. You know, what do you do? I'm an accountant. What do you do? I'm a robber. Okay, this is someone, this is their life. What happens when they want to repent? We say, we really appreciate that you're trying to give us back this money. It's fine. Keep it. Use it to build a new life. Rabbi Yochanan said, this Mishnah was taught in the days of Rebbe. As it is taught, there was a story of a man who sought to do tshuva. And his wife said to him, and I'm sorry that it's often the wife in these stories who's kind of a nag. She says to him, idiot, Reka, if you do tshuva, even your belt isn't yours. She's like, oh, now you want to be righteous after 50 years of lending with interest? We are going to be penniless. We're going to be broke. Nothing that you have actually belongs to you. It's all tainted. It all came from money that you got illegally. You can't repent. Sorry. Right? The doors are closed to you. Um, and it worked, right? He sort of took a look around his house and he said, hmm, what here did I get totally cleanly? He's like, great, I'll have a fork. I can't live like that, right? I can't go from being a wealthy robber to someone who only owns a fork. So I'm just not going to do, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to do tshuva. Um, and so therefore, Rebbe said, at that time they said, the robbers and the usurers, right, people who lend with interest, who have returned, we do not accept restitution from them. And one who accepts from them, the rabbis are not pleased with him. We learn, and now this is an extension, concerning the stolen board which was built into a house, he should take its value in money because of the law for repenters. Right? Theoretically, I can demand the self-same brick that you stole from me and make you destroy your whole house. But we don't do that. Right? We say, we're actually going to say that this brick is gone. We know it's not really gone, but we're going to say that it's gone because we need to be able to move on. We need to be able to move forward. Something was built with this brick. And 
we're going to allow repentance to happen, and we're not going to cling to this notion of this is inherently tainted, we can never move on from it. Um, okay, I wanna summarize um, a bit of what we've gone through, and then I wanna give some of my personal questions, my personal guidelines that I use when I'm trying to make a decision like, am I going to go to that person's lecture? These questions that I've asked, okay? So it's real life. But here's the summary. Um, essentially, what I started out by saying is, it's the wrong question to ask. Is there some kind of evil or impurity that inheres in the Torah, that inheres in the art? Because then if I can't find that evil or I can't hear that impurity, I think that the problem has been solved, right? But that's actually not the problem. You can have an extremely pure and an extremely valuable Torah that comes from a bad source and you have to be willing to dismiss that bad Torah, sorry, dismiss that good Torah from that bad source. You have to be willing to say, there's nothing wrong with this music. There's nothing wrong with this Torah. There's nothing wrong with this art. It's actually extremely uplifting. It's extremely spiritually valuable. But I have a value that is more ultimate. I'm not going to allow our society to be one of abettors and enablers. I am not going to give kavod, I am not going to give honor to someone who is not honorable. That is a profanation of heaven. That profanes God's name, and I'm not going to do it. Um, and just to sort of be like very explicit, right, I think that you know, a principal of a school who finds out that one of their teachers has been abusing students happens a lot. And it also happens a lot that that principal will not fire that teacher, will not go out on record and you know, start a huge tumult. They'll try to manage the situation. They'll try to shift things. Why? I think it's because this principle right, makes the mistake of thinking that either A, a person who produces great Torah can't do bad things, and so since I know that this person creates good Torah, but I'm not sure that they've done bad things, I just, I can't hear it, I can't believe it, and therefore I can't even investigate it, right? because it just, it offends my sense of the Torah's power as something that is always entirely good and is always only produced by good people. That's one possibility, right? Another possibility is that this, uh, this principle makes the mistake of thinking that the chilu Hashem, the profanation of God's name, is exposing the fact that sometimes good Torah comes from bad people. But actually, the violation of God's name is ignoring that fact, right? It's being willing to sit and say, yeah, but this person's Torah is really valuable, maybe if they just taught older students. Or maybe if instead of teaching girls, now they teach boys, right? And I don't actually have to come out and say, we don't accept Torah from this person because we are taking a strong stand against abuse. Instead, I say, I don't really wanna imply, right, that the Torah can have some impurity associated with it. And so what I am trying to suggest is, that's our starting point. If we feel confident saying, yes, sometimes the Torah can have impurity associated with it sometimes bad people produce good Torah, then we aren't tempted to cover it up. Then we aren't tempted to justify it because we know that that's just the way it is. And it is instead our responsibility to be umanim, 
It is our responsibility to be craftsmen, to be surgeons the way the Rebbe Mayer was, and to figure out what is right, what is wrong, what is usable, and what is not usable. Right? And I also made the distinction, which to me is extremely important, um, between what is the badness right, that we are trying to root out. I don't think we want to live in a world where we're striving for ideological purity. And if somebody has a political belief that we don't agree with, we no longer listen to their Torah. But if someone's behavior is pernicious and we give them honor, we give them platforms, and we give them access, that's actually something that we can't do. And we actually have to take a strong stand and say, no, I don't care about your Torah. I care about these people. Um, so here are some questions um, and guidelines that I use when I'm trying to decide, am I, am I going to participate in this Torah? And again, I would extend this right, to art, um, to science, right, to all sorts of realms where the human contribution is really significant and we have a lot of contributions from complicated humans. So the first question we ask is about the perpetrator. Is the perpetrator still alive? Right? If we're talking about someone who is getting honor now, then we're talking about giving a platform and giving access to someone. If we're talking about someone who passed away a long time ago, many generations ago, perhaps the question that we have to ask is different. Is enabling his Torah going to give him access to more victims? Will it give him more honor and thereby dishonor God's name? That's the question that we need to ask about the perpetrator. And the sources don't really deal with this, but this is a question that is very live for me. It's a question about the victim, right? Maybe the perpetrator is dead, and it's not really a question about giving them honor. But what about their victims, right? What about how it feels for me to sit in a lecture and hear this person who abused me quoted, right? And I, and I see them getting honor, even though they themselves do not see or experience the honor. So here's, here are the questions. Is the victim still alive? Is the encounter with this Torah going to cause her pain or be triggering? Is the teaching of this Torah going to be perceived by the victim, or I would say really anyone, as a legitimization of the crime against them? Questions about the Torah itself. Is the content of this Torah saturated with slash characterized by the sins of the person who produced it? Can there be a core that is pure while the outside is tainted, right? So if I've cleared the hurdle of the perpetrator and I've cleared the hurdle of the victim, I still need to ask myself, well, what is the quality of this Torah? Is this Torah that I feel comfortable learning, that I feel is making me into a better person, that I feel like is going to enable me to contribute? Or does this Torah make me feel uncomfortable, but I'm not really willing to say it? It's, a, it's about a gut check. Right? Because sometimes it is about the content. Do I think that this content is going to make me better? Or do I think that it might be better for me not to be listening to or engaging with this? Um, the consumer, do I feel comfortable supporting this person? Am I successfully extracting the fruit from the peel? Is accepting this Torah into my life having a corrupting influence on my integrity? When I'm listening to this music, am I constantly asking myself, is this okay? Am I legitimizing something that I shouldn't be legitimizing? If you find yourself constantly asking that question, it might be time to press stop. Here are questions not to ask. Is this Torah meaningful to me? Do I find it spiritually valuable? Would it be a loss of some kind if this Torah were not in the world? 
do I think of this work as irreplaceable? Right? If we allow ourselves to say, this person is irreplaceable, this person's Torah is invaluable, we will inevitably find ourselves in a situation where we are excusing their behavior and causing other people to suffer. It can't be the question that we ask. We need to ask the question about the harm and not the question about the value if we're going to come to a place of moral clarity and of strength. Right? And this is something that is extremely hard to do because it's also spiritually damaging. Right? I'm getting a lot out of this Torah. This is something that is very meaningful, could be transformative in my life. It could have made me into a better person. And then I need to go and say, I can't learn this Torah anymore. I can't teach this Torah anymore because I found out where it came from and I don't want to legitimize. It could be extremely difficult. It could feel right, like we are losing. Um, but I would like to argue right, that when we make a clear stance, when we try to articulate um, that the value of not showing honor to what isn't honorable and only considering the honor of heaven, um, we're going to end up with a much healthier society, um, both interpersonally and between us and God. We have time for questions. Yes. Um, so I think that you've provided us with a very nice list, right, of sins and problematic people. Um, and first of all, I want to say um, that I have a particular like perspective that I'm trying to get across, and it's true. There are other readings of Alicia Benabuya where his like behavior is bad. Um, I don't. I don't think that's really what bothers the rabbis about him. I think that they constructed that story about him because they're concerned about his heresy. Right? So it's, it's a question of sort of what leads what. Do I call you a heretic because your behavior is bad? Or am, I, or am I creating kind of boogeyman stories about you because you're a heretic? I think it's more likely what's happening there. Um, and I'm glad that you raised that distinction um, between the gadol and the katan, right? because it is possible that when we're talking about the great person or the lesser person, we're not talking about the consumer, the learner of the Torah, but we might be talking about the stature of the teacher of the Torah. Um, and you're arguing that maybe if the person who is teaching the Torah has less stature, we would be um, sort of less likely to accept their Torah. And if they have more stature, we'd be more likely to accept their Torah. But I think you could definitely read it the opposite. Right? If somebody's great, then they're a great threat. And if you know, some little Pesher Cheder teacher right, is eh, not so great, so like, OK, we can sort of safely ignore that. And God's name is not desecrated in the same way as when we give you know, major platforms to people who represent things that we don't agree with. Yeah, that's a great question. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think that a political question needs a political answer, 
right? So I'm not sure that um, this conversation is about, you know, if something is spiritually corrosive and also spiritually valuable, sort of how do we navigate that, right? I think the question of like, if a politician is, you know, problematic, should we oust them from office, right? I think that's just a separate question, although, you know, a personal politics aside. Yes. I, yeah, I appreciate that question. I don't, I don't think that in order to take this seriously, the lesson is we have to investigate everybody we encounter and we have to snuff out. You know, are they entirely spiritually pure? And if they're not entirely spiritually pure, we can't learn any Torah from them. Because if we did that, goodbye Torah. Right? So like that is impossible. Um, but when someone is either sort of acting in a really flagrant way where there's a consensus that this is not acceptable behavior, um, or when someone is, um, what's the right way to put this? When someone is of significant stature enough that a smaller thing has a bigger impact, right? We might, and this goes back to the first question, right? We might, we might have a stricter standard, right? A gadol katan situation where we're just, we can't mess around with someone who represents us in the same way. Yeah. Um, yes, Isaac. Um, the way that I read that moment of the story, right, is that I think a lot of people want to believe that we can have it all, right? And so these rabbis do not feel powerful enough to release the ban, but they do kind of come along for the ride to see what happens. Um, because I think that, that, and even Rabbi Yehuda, right, it wasn't clear Rabbi Yehuda immediately what he should do. Um, and I think that we're never going to get to a point where we're, and even I, who clearly feel very strongly about this topic, right, where we feel like, oh, I always made the right decision. This person, you know, hit this threshold and also like my boycott makes a difference. Right? We're never really going to get to that point. And I think that the rabbis accompanying him showed that like, maybe he wasn't really in full excommunication, right? That Rabbi Yehuda excommunicated him, but like he still had rabbi friends. If, he's, if his excommunication like really took effect, why does he have so many buddies? Um, and it might be that they couldn't really stand in that band, but they also understood where it came from and didn't feel the need, didn't feel they were able to flout it or dismantle it. It's a good question. Yeah. Bad people based on their behavior 
people were bad at their ideas. And I, um, my sense now on college campuses in sort of a particular milieu is that that, that distinction isn't, isn't so clear now. Um, uh, I feel like there's a lot of um, language now and sort of ethics about ideas that are harmful in themselves. You know, they're bad in a more like behavioral way. They cause harm, or saying that a person steals causes harm, or is uh, committing sexual sins is causing harm, that someone's ideas can be uh, just as harmful and violent, and that's the Um, so I'm going to respond to the question you did ask and also the question you didn't ask. Um, so in terms of the question that you did ask, but right, I think that you could say, right, that that person's Torah, right, which is the ideas that they're putting forward, if the ideas that they're putting forward are themselves bad Torah, then we're not actually in this conflict. We're like, oh, this bad person is producing good Torah. It's like, well, this racist is producing racism. We're just going to ignore them, right? So that actually seems to me to be not quite such a fraught question. Now, I understand that you were saying, right, it's not clear that an idea isn't an action. Um, no, so, um, so I, I will put anti, his like virulent anti-Semitism into the category of like we know that those ideas cause serious harm, um, and, but I also think like the question of like would can we now listen to a Mahler symphony? Right, I think the answer to that question might be yes. Right, under the framework that I put forward, um, like I, my father always said, you know, when my grandfather passes away, maybe he would consider buying a German car. But until my grandfather passes away, right, who was a victim of the Holocaust, like he would never consider you know, buying a German car. And I asked my father after my grandfather unfortunately passed away, you know, you're gonna buy a German car? And he's like, no. <laughs> right, so like, it, sometimes it sort of goes in a direction and we just kind of, we, it, does, it doesn't pass the like gut comfort test, um, which I think is also really important. Um, and in terms of the question that you didn't ask, um, one of the things that I was concerned about in putting together this class um, is that there has been something that I think like can be properly called sort of canceled culture. Um, that has grown um, on college campuses and has grown on the left, where like if someone has an unsavory idea or someone has done something that is, you know, considered to be like not acceptable, we just say about that person, you're canceled, right? And every single thing that they produce before or after that incident, it's like, you're not relevant, you're gone. Um, and it's because of that culture that I felt very strongly um, that I needed to talk about Chuba here. Right, that this is actually, this is not about giving up on people. This is about investing in people. Um, and this isn't like you do one thing, you're gone forever. It's that you do one thing, we call you out on it. And as a community, we work together to help, um, to help build, help people um, be built back up. We are at time, so I am going to stop now. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To learn more with Hadar, please visit hadar.org Torah.